Welcome to the Brighton Adventure Story Podcast. Chapter 17 Two Rivers Despite the likelihood that her lockdown fun with the droplifters was coming to an end, Annabelle seemed happy to help the Greenhands gang. She had, however, persuaded Jenny not to set up any fake packages to catch droplifters at their house. But that didn't mean that Jenny was going to sit around and do nothing. The Greenhands Gang chat server had been very busy indeed. Jenny had spent time chatting about the rat relief parcels, and even made a new channel to share how to make face masks. The channel she found herself in most, however, was the one listing the break-ins. It had Fred's map in it, showing the locations of the known break-ins, along with any polecat sightings. The idea of James's, that the break-ins were all near banks or jewellers, had made some sense at the time. A criminal could use the neighbouring buildings to gain access to the valuables. But since coming face to face with the long man, Jenny wasn't so sure. He wanted the Stone of Brighthelm, and he had a plan to get it. That didn't really fit with the idea of stealing money or valuables. So she looked at the data. Each reported break-in was marked by a dropped pin in the map. Most of the reports were from the local paper, but some of the Greenhands gang had added extras where they noticed broken windows or heard gossip through friends and family. The pins were not in any obvious pattern, apart from all being in a rough area that ran north-south down the west side of Grand Parade and the Old Steen. There were a few pins on the east side of Grand Parade, and a small cluster a little further west of the line, near the Quaker Meeting House in the lanes. Jenny switched layers and looked at the satellite images of the town. Grand Parade and the Old Steen cut a wide green strip through the town to the beach. She could easily spot the dome and the Royal Pavilion on the west side of the grassy strip. There was a pin right next to the dome. It looked like it was a break-in at a restaurant. The last pin before the sea was in a little cafe in Pool Valley. Pool Valley was the town centre's diminutive coach station. Coaches ran regularly from there to Gatwick and Heathrow airports. There was only room for a couple of coaches to park at a time, crammed in between an old hotel and a youth hostel. The name Pool Valley was a strange one. It suggested that it had once been something else. Jenny checked up on a couple of local history websites. Sure enough, 300 years ago, that part of town had been a boggy marsh. When the Prince Regent had moved into the town and built the Royal Pavilion as his residence, he discovered one of the gardens turned into a marsh around Christmas. This was caused by an underground river called the Wellsbourne, a river that rose in the winter. It seemed there was also another underground stream, a tributary of the Wellsbourne, that flowed from the nearby town of Lewis and down through the level on the east side of the town. The two rivers met near the pavilion and formed the pool after which Pool Valley was named. It turned out that the prince did not like having marshy ground outside his fancy new palace and had the river diverted and the marsh drained. Jenny went back to the map after her research. She edited the break-in layer and added two straight lines. One for the Wellsbourne, roughly following London Road, and one for the tributary, running from the level to meet the other river at Pool Valley. Now that she had the two lines, it was clear to her that the break-ins were clustered around them. So there were three clusters, the East River Line, the West River Line, and the group around the Quaker Meeting House. The more Jenny looked at it, 
the more it seemed like the long man had been searching for the two old rivers. What they had to do with the Quaker meeting house, she didn't know. The huge river in the Wellsbourne caverns that flowed past Ratterston must be the East River, coming in from Patcham under London Road. She made up her mind to investigate Pool Valley and the meeting house, and that meant a nice long walk, which meant borrowing Teddy again. She messaged Mrs Perry before going to bed. After an early breakfast, she got a rat relief package together, pulled on her face mask, and went out to pick up the dog. She made sure and got some dog treats, too. The sky was a crisp, clear blue, not a cloud nor vapour trail in sight. With Teddy trotting happily along by her side, she set off to her first stop, Preston Park Clock Tower. Jenny's rat relief package consisted of various vegetable peelings from dinner the night before, a whole avocado, two carrots, and half a packet of shreddies, all wrapped in newspaper. She had checked it against a long list of verified rat-friendly foods that Wilf had carefully curated. For the last year, the clock tower in Preston Park had been protected by a tall, green metal fence. Jenny cut down from the track that ran parallel with Preston Park Avenue, waited for a jogger to pass, and bent down by the northeast corner of the tall fence. She gave Teddy a good rub and got the newspaper package out of her bag. Moments later, Teddy gave a whimper, and Zen and Bobby scuttled out from their hiding place. How's it going? Jenny asked, passing the package under the fence. Great, Zen said. Everyone in Ratterston is loving the new delivery system. And best of all, Bobby said, we get the pick of the crop. Well, make sure and be fair, Jenny said, and don't let Lord Ratzenberg keep everything for himself. Here. She pulled out three dog treats. One for each rat and one for Teddy. Keep up the good work. We will, the rats said with smiles on their faces. Teddy perked back up again after eating his treat. The next stop was the old elm tree. The Greenhands gang had decided to try and have someone close by to the tree for as much time as possible. Jenny's turn at tree watching wasn't until much later, but she thought she would check in on Juan and Yasser to make sure they were okay. As she got nearer, she was surprised and disappointed to see the tree was currently unwatched. Unsurprisingly, Teddy was not so happy to be back at the tree and pulled at his lead to show it. She sighed and let him pull her away. Hey, a voice called. You're not supposed to be here until the afternoon. She turned and saw Juan high up among the leafy branches. Is everything okay? she asked. Where's Yasser? Here, Yasser called out. He was on the opposite side to Juan. I'm socially distancing, see? Did you say this was a magic tree? Juan asked. Seems normal to me. It's one of the sentinelms, Jenny said. The only one now. I don't know much about it, really. It provides some kind of protection to the rockery over there. She pointed over the road where the rockery rose steeply up to the train lines, its plants and bushes bursting brightly into full spring bloom. Just out of sight at pavement level was a very deep pond nestled under a huge weeping willow. In that pond, strapped to the back of an enormous fish, was the stone of Brighthelm. Oh there, Juan said. I saw something weird over there earlier on. A really tall man with a weird dog did some fishing. Then a woman with a buggy came along and he left. That could be the long man, Jenny said. Add the sighting to the map later. We will. She left the boys up the tree. 
It worried her that the long man and Skady had been so close, and that he was trying to get to the stone of Brighthelm in broad daylight. It was a long walk to the next stop. From Preston Park, she followed the West River line of pins in the map, the route of the Wellsbourne. She stopped frequently where there had been break-ins, not sure what she was looking for, just hoping she'd know it when she saw it. Town was certainly nowhere near normal busy. There were still plenty of people on their way to work, enjoying the morning sunshine. At least the roads were nice and quiet. Jenny hardly had to wait once to cross any of them. Nothing remarkable happened on the way through town. Each break-in location was just a normal business, as far as she could tell. James's idea that they were next door to banks was proved false. Two of the break-ins were in a shoddy-looking row of shops, with nothing else around at all. The last break-in that was definitely part of the West River line, before Pool Valley, was the restaurant opposite the Dome. It was only a slight detour from their route, so Jenny and Teddy turned right and up Church Street to check it out. The grey square building was on the corner of a pedestrian lane that connected the Prince Regent swimming pool to Church Street. Most of the building was taken up by the restaurant, with another smaller shop jammed awkwardly up against one side. Like the rest of the non-essential businesses, the restaurant was closed. Jenny peered in through the big windows at the front. The chairs and tables were stacked, but otherwise she couldn't detect any signs of the break-in. She took Teddy down the pedestrian lane at the side. There was a little outdoor dining space walled off from the lane. Through the gate, Jenny saw that a window in the back of the restaurant had been boarded up. There wasn't much else to look at. She crossed back over Church Street to the dome side. The restaurant had been painted a dark grey, not at all in keeping with the yellow brick of the dome and the corn exchange, nor with the white cream Regency paint of the neighbouring buildings. Perhaps it was the different colour that made Jenny notice it. Above the restaurant door, there was a plaster relief of a kind of coat of arms. And in that coat of arms were two sea creatures of an unmistakably squiducken-like nature. The next stop was Pool Valley. She cut through the old steen. The fountain was on, and there was hardly anyone around to enjoy it. There was a fine mist in the air, spray from the fountain. A rainbow shimmered around the central sculpture. It was a grand old thing. Two elevated dishes with a cascade of water pouring from one into the next and then into the pool underneath. And now she thought about it, the dishes were held up by three large sea creatures twisting around each other. More squiduckens. If anything, Pool Valley was less interesting than the fountain in the old steen. Jenny found the break-in, an old tea shop with a bust window. She searched around it for squiduckens or any signs of the long man, but found nothing. She gave Teddy another treat. Her last stop was the Quaker Meeting House on Meeting House Lane. It was only a five-minute walk away through the lanes. The lanes were a set of small roads and alleys that were home to a glut of touristy shops and cafes. On a weekday morning, they would usually be bustling with shoppers. Not today. The shops and cafes were closed. The shoppers were socially distancing elsewhere. The Quaker Meeting House nestled between a narrow lane, a jeweller's, a pub and a tile shop. It did manage to squeeze in its own little garden into the space. Jenny looked over the garden wall as she walked past. There were two bikes leaning against a bench near the entrance. Someone came out as she was staring. She quickly looked forward and marched on with Teddy. This was the first break-in sight with any activity, 
and the person she had seen coming out was wearing a hoodie and looked young. It could have been a droplifter, or a journeyman, or perhaps a Quaker. She wanted to turn back and look, but it would be too obvious. It was clear to her that more investigation was needed. She kept on walking and took the next lane to the right, and then went right again. The little lane snaked around a pub and past a jeweller and ended up at the back wall of the Quaker meeting house. It was a big red brick and flint wall with no windows at all. There was, interestingly, a bricked up doorway halfway along. Jenny stopped to look at it. On one side, scratched low into a red brick, was exactly what she had been hoping for. Three claw marks next to a dark crack. She gave Teddy another treat and set off home, eager to share her discoveries with the rest of the Greenhands gang. The three scratch marks were a sign, just like the one on the side of St Nicholas's church. They meant that the bricked-up doorway actually still worked, and the dark crack was, in fact, a keyhole. What Jenny needed now was a special key, which just happened to be in James's bag. She would get the key when they met up at lunchtime. And then she would be able to sneak inside the meeting house and find out exactly what the long man was up to.